Hi everyone, I'm Yasmina and this is Conversations Over Coffee. A podcast where I speak to inspiring Palestinians. Today, we're in conversation with Ahmed Adin. He's an Emmy-nominated journalist, producer and actor who's previously worked for the likes of Al Jazeera English, AJ Plus and the New York Times. Hi, Ahmed. How are you? Hi, Yasmina. I'm great. Happy to be with you. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. My pleasure. So I want to start at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Oh, God. Do you have seven hours? <laughs> um, so I, I'm originally Palestinian, and I often say that um, uh, in the sense that my mom is from Haifa and my dad is from Yaffa, and they left in 48 and 67. I like to start there even though it's before I was born, because I think those the roots have had a profound impact on my sense of self and identity, um, regardless of having never lived there. But I was born in California. I grew up in Egypt for about nine years, my formative years. Uh, I moved to Austria for high school, and it was a very traumatic time, I would say, to be living in Austria and to be brown um, because there was a neo-Nazi in power, but we can get into that later if, if you're interested. Um, yeah, and my background, my, I, I basically, ever since graduating from undergrad, kind of shuttled across the world um, doing journalism and kind of uh, making a small home here and there, for example, in Doha, Qatar, New York City, Boston. So a third culture kid to the max then. Third culture kid to the max, and also an identity crisis to the right. max, for which which often go together. Especially since um, you know, growing up in Egypt, I mean, it's not that I didn't know we were Palestinian, but you you want to assimilate. So at times, I was like, no, I'm Egyptian. Like I, you know, I, I can speak Arabic like these people, and and then again, same thing in Kuwait. But like in each place I call home or called home, I always felt a little bit like an outcast and like I had to adapt to this new place. So it's it's a very odd concept inherently to me, the concept of home. Actually, I think that's really reassuring because most of us grow up feeling a similar way. True. So how did that struggle with your identity manifest for you? I think timing in life really matters, right? And um, it just so happened that at various points in my life, things were happening happening in the world uh, that also made that sort of schizophrenic upbringing, right? Uh, Shuttling back and forth between cultures and continents and ways of being. Um, You know, so for example, just quickly, like when I was 14, as I mentioned, when I moved to Austria, there was a guy in power named uh, Jörg Haider. And a lot of the foreign embassies were shutting down out of fear of just the xenophobic sort of Nazi language. And, you know, being a 14-year-old Palestinian who doesn't speak German, who just arrived into this country, um, you know, it was a already a difficult time because, you know, at the age of 14, you don't want to have to really make all new friends and find your sense of self again. But um, it was also a much diff- more difficult time because of what was happening in, in the country, the context, right? Um, I had never before in my life experienced uh, persistent and consistent consistent discrimination and overt sort of racism the way I did when I first arrived to Austria. And nobody spoke English. And I had to, you know, 
figure out how to how to make sense of myself and, and my environment. It was, that was one of the most challenging times. I think being a teenager is hard um, in general because you're trying to process so much and establish you know a sense of who you are, and then there's the peer pressure. But uh, yeah, that for example, I think manifested in that no matter where I would exist, like when I went to undergrad at BU, when I went, you know, I was an American citizen studying in the U.S., but I'd never lived in the U.S., so there were a lot of cultural issues um, that I found, you know, sort of surprising, and I think also, um, you know, moving to Boston the year after 9-11 with your name Ahmad, uh, you know, and all this sort of, at the time, you know, a lot of Palestinian pride, and there was just so much, you know, again, that's what I mean about timing matters. Like, had I moved maybe a few years earlier, I would have certainly had a very different experience at Boston. I mean, Boston, again, wasn't as overtly racist, perhaps, as Vienna, uh, but it's sad that it sounds like I'm describing my upbringing having a through line of racism and discrimination, but now I'm like, maybe maybe I should share that with my no, so how did you manage to stay connected with your roots growing up in all of this? Um, I, I, how did I manage to stay connected? It's interesting, you know, I've, I've come to learn that there's a lot of different sort of Palestinian experiences, right, in the diaspora, especially with how parents relate or the older generation that was forced to flee, um, how they relate to their experience. I mean, my parents never really wanted to talk about details of what it was like to leave, what it was like living there. Um, So for me, um, you know, forget like staying connected to my Palestinian identity, but like just establishing uh, a connection in in the first place was always a bit tough because it was always like, it was always done through sort of osmosis, you know, through through stories and culture and music and um, sadly through following the politics of of what's happening there. And um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't until I was 24 that I went to Palestine for the first time, but I would say throughout my time in university and, you know, I was very active. I was very much attached to this identity and I think I was attached to it because of, I was keenly aware of, um, sort of the threat, the erase, the erasing of Palestinian culture and the experience, and even the land and the state itself, you know. So uh, it was kind of like wanting to attach and be connected to something that, in a sense, uh, wasn't tangible for me. You know, I, I felt Palestinian in my blood. Uh, I spoke Palestinian uh, before I was corrupted by my Lebanese friends. No, <laughs> love my Lebanese friends. That was my my choice. Um, whenever I go back or I speak to my uncles in Palestine, they're always like, they'll ask me a question in Arabic and I'll say, eh, eh, and they'll be like, eh, eh? Ah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, side note, I guess. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah, so I think in a way, music, culture, literature, Edward Said, um, you know, I, I always was very conscious of um, my privilege growing up even at a young age, and I think that made me connect to my Palestinian identity all the more. Right. Um, because, because I saw sort of a, an inherent value. You know, there's, it's hard to move on, but there's many people who just, you know, the, the suffering 
uh, over generations is, is so traumatic, perhaps, that they, they don't want to sort of stay connected to this identity. They really want to build a new life and a new identity. And um, I'm not going to lie, uh, you know, unfortunately, especially working in the media, being Palestinian, let alone being a proud or vocal or visible, um, it, it was controversial inherently, and it, it was inherently political, and, you know, and I, I wish that weren't the case, but, you know, that's life. Right. So what sparked your interest in journalism then? Was it this natural outlet to explore your identity, or was it something else? I think um, it was a combo. Uh, it was certainly certainly that, but also I think more more generally, you know, again, when I was growing up, I, I was a bit confused um, when I would come to learn sort of my experience was different than a lot of my friends, wherever I was living at the time, uh, in that, you know, everyone else seemed to have a more solid sense of, I'm from this country, I go back to this country, you know, it's like, um, and so I think that definitely informed my curiosity as to what is a nation state, you know, why, why do we have these... Uh, I don't know. I, I, I've, I've always been a bit uh, of an outcast, um, you know, not just socially or, or like I, 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 I always I never really felt like I fit in. And I think that that experience and being sort of forced to adapt to very different surroundings had me constantly in my own mind questioning why in one part of the world it's very normal to do these things, but in another part of World, they're forbidden and and how can I sort of exist between those two and so that why I think uh, and that fascination on a fundamental level maybe is what inspired me to be a journalist it, it seemed like I love to ask questions I love to uh, listen to stories and also tell stories so journalism you know and I also love to write as a kid I used to write a lot of cheesy poetry so I was like rather than write cheesy poetry maybe I could write something else. <laughs> right and you also mentioned how being proud of your heritage was seen as controversial. Do you feel that being a journalist of Palestinian heritage is somewhat of a handicap, especially in mainstream media? Yeah, I think it, I think it certainly is a unique experience and challenging. Uh, I, I, I don't know about the handicap, just because for me, I mean, it's, it's a good question, but I don't want to, for myself, I think, frame it as something that makes it harder for you to do your job. Because in a lot of ways, I think that that identity also, you know, gave me tools and equipped me to kind of um, be a better journalist, if that makes any sense. But but on the face of it, I think what you're asking is, is you know, was it a point of contention? Was it controversial? Was it challenging? It, it was challenging, especially, it was challenging in general because of, as I told you, the sort of the political, um, you know, kind of misinformation around what, what it means to be Palestinian and all the sort of prejudice. Uh, but, but beyond that, it was challenging to cover Palestine uh, consistently. Um, to, uh, to, you know, everyone, it's not like it's an obscure uh, situation. Everyone, you know, for decades we're hearing about it. So I think there was a lot of sort of constantly feeling like you had to justify why it was a value or of interest to cover it and again when you would want to cover when i you know when when you want to cover stories palestinians for a long time and i still think today but it's 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 you know we progressed but for a long time it was kind of 
there was no room for it. Um, there was no t no interest. There was no, no. It was almost like um, it was. It was. I don't know. If, I, I don't know how to articulate this properly, but it, it's an interesting question because it was like when I would present Palestinians in a narrative or in a sense that deviated from this terrorism violent lens. Um, and if I get out of the if, if Palestinian stories about culture about creativity, about ingenuity, about whatever, we're just seen as like not only not interesting to the audience, I can't tell you how many times it was like uh, that was the, the, the mantra, the adage uh, in newsrooms, you know, our audience, don't, they don't care about these international stories, let alone Israel and Palestine. But it was beyond that, it, it was like um, they couldn't, it was an inability to comprehend and, and kind of see Palestinians as anything but this very limited tiny role that, that had been given to them by, by the narrative for so long. I completely agree. I mean, that's the whole point of this podcast, to show Palestinians in a different light, because mm -hmm. we're either reduced to victims that need to be saved or perpetrators of violence. And obviously there's a whole other side to us and our identity that's just consistently swept under the carpet. The carpet, 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 Now, whether it was Vice, The New York Times, The Huffington Post, you've worked for a number of mainstream media outlets. From your experiences there, did you ever feel like you were confronting a barrier of censorship? Yeah, I don't think it's that surprising or controversial to, to say that I've had um, the good fortune of working at multiple mainstream media organizations in the West, but in general. And I never stood any of them quite long enough to really, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is at every single place I worked, there was overt or other forms of censorship when it comes to Israel and Palestine. Specifically, as I said, when it was stories that humanized Palestinians or um, criticize, you know, the Israeli government or the, the Israeli narrative. Um, or Israeli actions. Um, and that was, you know, it was evident at PBS uh, to a certain extent. That was my first job. It was certainly evident at the New York Times, especially around the time when I was working there. Um, yeah, and that's kind of maybe why I ended up working for Al Jazeera English at three different, like with, I kept going back to Al Jazeera English. Um, and, and, you know, not to get political, but in part it was because it was for a long time uh, one of the few outlets that, you know, people always say, oh, because they're like pro-Palestinian. No, it's not that they're pro-Palestinian. It's one of the few outlets where on this issue, um, there was no censorship, you know, on either side. And there was an inherent recognition that this was a story of value, um, you know, and that, that, that didn't want to sort of self-censor and where there wasn't that culture. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I think censorship is, is not an overstatement, and it continues today. Uh, in fact, sorry, just today, I don't know if you saw, but there was yet another sort of news story about how Facebook and Meta admitted to sort of, you know, censorship uh, uh, when it comes to Israel and Palestine, especially in the last two years, um, especially Arabic language content, and especially content coming from Palestine. I mean, you know, we, for your audience, I would imagine they might be familiar with this. 
But to me, you know, these confirmations, these validations, it's not surprising. Um, I think it just is a, is a continuation of what we saw in the mainstream media. I mean, let's not forget Facebook and Meta, one of the biggest uh, media publishers, even if they don't want to say that they're a media company today. Uh, majority of the world, you know, gets their news um, from there. So, so that there was a targeted system of censorship that's now, you know, kind of unraveling. It's, it's, it's not surprising to many of us, but it is very frustrating nonetheless. Right. And what I think is just as important, but far less talked about, is the role of self-censorship, which I think you alluded to. Mm -hmm. What did self-censorship look like for you? What were those feelings and pressures? I don't know if I'm the perfect person to talk about it or the worst person, but, but I say that because I look around and in the journalism sphere, if you will, there are a lot of colleagues who I think were always um, more mindful, let's say, of how they spoke uh, or wrote about Palestine, knowing uh, that it could severely limit opportunities in the future, uh, especially if, if you know you're 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 as bold and sort of outspoken and kind of um, you know sort of consistently uh, criti critical of the occupation itself. Uh, with, with tough language, and, and if you if you choose to do it, sort of, yeah. I mean, I never really, I guess the answer is, I don't think this was really something that, that makes me seem particularly brave or courageous, but it was maybe a bit naive. I mean, I didn't want to compromise um, on, on that, and I think that maybe made me miss a lot of opportunities. Um, not maybe. I mean, like, you know, so, so for me, I saw, yeah, like I saw it around me all the time. Uh, and I saw friends of mine who I respect. And I think, you know, there's no right way to do it. I think the self-censorship that I'm talking about is, is something that, that's often just their messaging and through experience navigating the media world, particularly in the U.S., um, you know, directly and indirectly, you receive the message that, you know, this is sort of a taboo topic. Um, don't push, uh, don't push the envelope on this, you know, even for a long time, whether in writing or in video form, you know, saying things like occupied West Bank was super controversial. Uh, you know, when I used to work with the wires, like you, you couldn't even say these sorts of, you know, very sort of descriptive, <laughs> uh, you know, so yeah, it was, um, yeah, I mean, I, th I still think you see this, unfortunately, today, maybe less so, I think some things changed, shifted slightly, but I think there's still a lot of self-censorship. Look, I mean, comes down to it, I did an interview with Mohammed, right? He never, I mean, I guess he's not a journalist, not the best example, but my point is, when I speak to successful Palestinians or Pal Palestinians who are hustling in whatever industry they're in, um, there's always, to varying degrees, this sense of, you know, the censorship balance. Like, how much do you sort of hide or how much do you, you know, bite your lip um, when opportunities present themselves to be vocal and to be visible? And I think it's because you don't want to lose opportunities in the future. Absolutely. And I think you're right to bring in the example of Mo Amir because self-censorship really does affect us all. It's this internal battle of how far can I go? And I argue with my dad about this on a daily basis because he tells me 
play the long game, you know, being this outspoken might cost you down the line. And dad, I'm sure you're listening and I know we're going to discuss this later, but as much as I get why he and his generation would hold that opinion, the more you realize that that's just not enough. Because if we don't speak out against this, who will? Well, if I can share just personally, because you framed it in, a, in, in that sense, play the little game. As a journalist, I certainly have, I don't know if they're regrets, but I, I certainly wonder sometimes and often, maybe more often than I'd like to admit, had I played the long game like some of my colleagues, uh, like some of my colleagues who, it's not like they were just pretending they weren't Palestinian or not covering it, but they were just kind of a lot more aware of how to be balanced and not to ruffle feathers with like bold statements. Uh, Whereas when I was writing, for example, for the Huffington Post, which were essentially commentary and opinion pieces at the age of 20, I don't know what they had, and even elsewhere, um, you know, I just, I, there was a lot of, an, a lot of it came down to emotions. Um, I don't think emotions are, are, are a bad thing in journalism. I just think you have to know, it's not like I hate, I don't want people to think, oh, I got emotional and I said all these things. But, you know, everyone has a different path, everyone has a different purpose, but there were certainly very clear indications from things that happened to me in my life where opportunities that had already been agreed upon, signed on, cemented, um, right before they materialized, like huge opportunities, right, to have huge influence over the media, um, they just disappeared at the last minute. And each time consistently, it was the same um, I mean, no one at the time would overtly give me the explanation, but with time, I, I would come to learn, and I, you know, that it was because there were perceptions that, oh, you're an anti-Semite, or oh, you're anti-this. Just you know, all these sort of, um, it's, it's as if, like, the bar f- to be able to discredit someone, a journalist in the media, whether they're Palestinian or not, because they, you know, observe and relay the very basics of that sort of disproportionate power dynamic of the occupier and the occupied, or they just describe things as they are. I mean, it, it's, uh, yeah, it was certainly, it was certainly a, a reality and sadly one that continues today. But I don't think, I, I think I regret it. I try to, sorry, I, I try to, I, I try to not, um, I, as I said, I think everyone has a different path, you know, and um, yeah, maybe maybe other people who played the long game have a longer career, but at the end of the day, you know, I think um, I think you got to do what feels right and learn from it. Right, and so I wonder, do you ever consider speaking about the specific opportunities you lost on, not only to raise awareness about what happened to you, but also to prevent other Palestinians from suffering the same fate? For sure. I mean, uh, anecdotally, much like on this podcast, when I would do countless talks and events, I would always speak quite openly. I mean, not with details uh, for a long time about this. But in the last two years, I have been a lot more kind of transparent about these experiences um, that I've, you know, these lived experiences that, that have taught me a thing or two. And I think that also can teach us a lot about why these things are still seen as controversial and, and what have you. Also, I've been writing been working on writing a book, uh, not like a memoir, but I have a close friend who used to tease me when I would say, hey, I want to write a book. She'd be like, what do you know about the world? What do you know about anything? You're still so young. 
But then, I don't know, something happened in COVID. Um, you know, I would share all these stories with my friends, and, and some of them are quite dramatic and just, I think they, they highlight just, again, the, the, the sort of absurd amount of censorship that existed and how, how it was just uh, so taboo. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's also value, not in necessarily outing these companies, but um, in kind of holding ourselves accountable and by ourselves I mean a society uh, you know a media industry um, and 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 I think a lot of this led to me eventually questioning various points in my career as a journalist like having some disillusionment about well what is this really about you know why why are we doing this is it to win awards is it to inform and educate is it to report reality because you know when when you not just with Palestine but particularly with Palestine when you see the 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 extent to which people will go to kind of uh, suppress uh, the reality from being reported on the ground, whether Palestine or Puerto Rico or what have you. Um, it can either motivate you to, to do journalism all the more, but sometimes when you see how it just doesn't work, you you know, you can get disillusioned by it. Well, I will definitely be waiting out for this book then. <laughs> no, because I feel that Palestinians often fall into this trap of playing the victim. Mm. And it's in the sense that will vaguely allude to some sort of injustice that we've suffered, but then we won't play our part in speaking out against it and ensuring that history doesn't repeat itself. Amen. And I think the victimization thing, you know, I don't want to get too existential about things or too, uh, this isn't a mindfulness podcast, but, you know, because COVID was very um, disruptive to so many of our lives and forced us, I think for, for those of us, especially the privileged, to kind of reflect on our lives. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of victimization, especially in the, in the Palestinian context, from being a little too overly attached to any identity. And I think what happens with Palestine, especially in the diaspora, and, you know, the divide and conquer strategy has been proven to be uh, effective and, 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 and for a reason, because I think when you are so divided and when your search for belonging is so uh, powerful, uh, it, can, it can kind of, um, you know, when there's that much sort of trauma over generations that can be inherited, that can be, um, you know, I just think it, it, you can become a victim of your own. And uh, unfortunately, there's a narrative that, that is constantly perpetuated right that if you lament or if you talk if you talk about your suffering that you're somehow a victim or victimizing yourself and it's such a fine line um and i think so much of it comes from that that loss that immense loss over generations that so many of us still feel one way or another whether we feel it because of these you know lived experiences you and i are talking about or stories that have been told to us and you know so it's it's yeah i think it's important that we find that balance and that we just share the reality but be mindful of what the motivation is behind why why you're sharing it like you know if you're if you're not if yeah if you're not sharing it to be like uh, get pity uh which you know i think is not why so many of us share it right we share it we want to end and suffering for generations to come right and so it makes me wonder Although you were less susceptible to these pressures than some of your colleagues, can you recall an instance where you felt like you had to tell a story in a certain way and now wish you could go back and tell it differently? Yeah, 
For a long time, I never spoke about my experience at Vice, uh, but recently I have. What I will say is, you know, when I was working there, I learned a lot and I worked with some great people. But I was also very surprised uh, about sort of the style journalistically of, of how they would approach certain things. And I, I worked on about five to six docs while I was there. So in, in under a year, I think, uh, or a year and a half, I was, was shuttling around the world, really. And it was an incredible opportunity. Um, but what it also meant is that I had to, for example, me and um, a producer and cameraman went to Palestine and Israel alone, just the two of us, like a very small crew. And that was great because, it, you know, it allowed us to kind of gain access and, and people would open up and they, they were able to trust us more. But all this to say, when we got back, we had some incredible footage of Silwan and um, sort of ethnic dis displacement happening right before our eyes in a very dramatic way. Um, and it was raining, and it just, it was, it was, they were kicking, you know, these Swedish settlers, and they were kicking out this family, the Abu Nab family, but they only had the, the, like, legal documents to kick out three of the four, so the mother with her daughter was coming, you know, walking her with her daughter home, and she was trying to, to get into her home, and she was being not let in by these settlers with guns who were, like, it was just very dramatic. I can't describe it. It was the kind of thing where we had incredible scene that really, on its own, really uh, sort of uncovered the, the, the sort of the dehumanization in such a visceral way that it would be more powerful than any interview or what have you. And not only was that cut from the doc, um, we had we had laid it out at the beginning of, of our cut and we sent it to HBO and HBO got it back and gave us some positive feedback but then people at Vice were like, oh we got it, you know I saw a cut of the, all the, like people just started taking out any sort of, <laughs> anything that would make the audience empathize with Palestine, I mean that, that was my takeaway, right, you know when I, when I saw that long story short the documentary had to get made at the end of the day and you know, again, working for these companies you, you only have as much uh, kind of clout or ability to kind of influence it. At the end of the day, it's their, their content, you know, and they own the rights. And I guess what happened was they would send me, like, as we were doing the script, I was in the Philippines doing another doc while we were doing the voiceover for the documentary about Palestine. And I just started to notice not, not only was the cut changing without my being involved, they would, you know, kind of dilute it a little bit, especially the more, uh, you know... <laughs> Uh, but but all this to say that when I recorded that voiceover, I, I would look and there was like things like both sides have suffered massive casualties. You know, th this kind of erasing of the disproportionate power dynamic, the, the loss. And um, yeah, so I, I deeply regret. I, I'm still proud of that film, for example, for a lot of what it accomplishes. But I'm so I definitely regret those lines ever having come out of my mouth and that they chose to go with it. Because, you know, in a sense, that's an example of me um, contributing to to the misinformation uh, around this and, and kind of to erase, as I said, uh, the most fundamental contextual point of understanding to actually understand what's happening there and what, what should change and, you know, what needs to happen. So, yeah, I mean, that's one example of... I just... We had an interview with Dr. Hanan Ashrawi, like a, a hero of mine, a 45-minute interview. She, she broke down crying. I've never seen this very strong, poignant woman 
uh, break down in such a way. And I think there was such value in those all that footage that never made it to air. And and the reason that you know that was always given was like, dude, it's crazy. Like the settlements, like we don't know what to do about them because some people think they're legit, and like some people don't think they're legit. And like that kind of like. Yeah, that kind of reductive. I mean, look, Vice makes great content on Palestine and, and other things. And I'm, but, but, like, I quit my job at Vice, even though it was a huge break for me. I mean, you know, first time HBO does a documentary about Palestine from, from the youth perspective uh, with a Palestinian, you know, journalist nonetheless. So, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, yeah. I don't know, it's quite right, sad. and although you perhaps feel regret about pushing the narrative that Vice wanted at the time, it's also a really powerful thing to come out and say how you do things differently. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it must feel really liberating to be able to yeah. break past these power structures that mainstream journalism continues to uphold. Yeah, no, I mean, that's certainly accurate. I think... Um, I don't know that it's like people, my friends and I joke, they're like, well, after last summer and all, some of the things you were saying, I don't know how anyone's going to hire you in the States. And I'm like, I was like, well, maybe that's a good thing. You know, maybe, I mean, not, not that to be unhirable. I'm kind of joking about that. I mean, obviously my parents have their own concerns, but, um, you know, parents, parents will always be parents. I could be 50 and they'd still be like, mama, why did you say this? Um, but, but the truth is, yeah, I mean, I think, there's something to be said about going independent. Um, when I was a journalist working for all these companies, it was kind of like trying to find where I fit in. I mean, some of the content that I would, and some of the journalists, some of the organizations that I, I loved the most were the ones that were independent, whether Democracy Now, with Amy Goodman, or so many others. I mean, they were they were the ones that I would consume the most. And, and you know, it's like I've worked for independent media orgs. I've been involved. But, yeah, I think there's uh, there's a lot to be said about going the independent route if you can afford it. Right. And another thing that I think gets in the way of telling a story is the aspiration for objectivity. Now, you went to Columbia for your postgrad, and it's a renowned institution of journalism, and one I'm sure where they drill into your heads that you need to be objective, you need to report the facts, you need to push your emotions to the side. So coming from this background, do you still think that journalists should aspire to be objective? And especially if they're reporting on Palestine. Uh, I certainly don't think that as an aspiration, we should aspire to be objective because the way that's always been explained, this sort of view from nowhere, as it was explained to me um, at Columbia. I mean, I don't mean to ridicule it or demean it or belittle it. I understand why it exists. We have to remember, again, the context. This, this was at a time when there were only a handful of people who were deemed to be sort of uh, credible or authoritative, white men usually, with a certain point of view. And so I think, you know, I just think um, focusing on what we shouldn't be, you know, that we shouldn't allow our experiences uh, to, to factor into the way we tell stories as journalists or, the, or our language skills or our gender identity, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it, Theoretically, I understand why, you know, there's this, uh, <laughs> there's this supposition that we can and should turn those parts of ourselves off. But, like, I don't know, like, when you show up somewhere, can you just, um, and do you think it's of value or it's, it's, <laughs> it's uh, worth your while to uh, pretend you're not a woman or Arab, you know? But beyond that, I, 
even more importantly, I think it's 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 a convenient way to obfuscate away from transparency and accountability, which I think are are missing in in the media business and in storytelling, and I think are much more valuable for the audience to understand. Like at the end of the day, what's journalism about? It's about engaging and educating an audience and informing an audience. Well, the best way to inform people is to also inform them and be a bit transparent and accountable about like who you are. And you, you want to call them biases, we can call them biases. I don't think they're biases. I think they're traits, their experiences, their lived experiences, their identities that, you know, inevitably are going to impact how you tell a story. And I think that's okay. So why, why pretend that that's not happening? Right. And I think that aspiring for objectivity is counterproductive. Because what it becomes is an excuse to avoid being bold. And it gets in the way of telling a story how it really is. I think, I, I think as Palestinians, we're keenly aware of this because of how much misrepresentation and misinformation deliberately there has been, uh, which has led to more suffering and more strife. And, and I, I just want to make that clarification because sometimes people are very flippant with me. And over the years, they've been like, oh, you know, at conferences, I'll be speaking at a panel. And someone's like, he's not a journalist. He's an activist. Uh, you know, and, and it's because it's very easy then for people to say, oh, well, because he's Palestinian or, oh, because, you know, at the end of the day, um, erasing the Palestinian experience is, is manifests in media when we tell people, especially Palestinians, who, like, there are a lot of Palestinians on the ground who, for better or worse, are telling their stories, are journalists, whether online or because they're actually working for a media organization. And imagine, imagine telling them to, to not bring their experience to the table. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's, yeah, I don't know. Right, and what I really think is missing here is that stories are told best when they're told with empathy. And it's mm. because in order to actualize change, you need to make people feel something. And I don't mm -hmm. think that's possible if you're just concerned with being objective. So we talked a lot about the hardships that you've endured, but yeah. I want to cross over to the other side. You've been in journalism for over two decades now. What story are you most proud of? It's a great question. Um, specific story. I mean, in a sense, I think personally, my coverage of the hurricane in Puerto Rico, Hurricane Maria, is some of the coverage uh, I'm most proud of because it was personally and professionally extremely challenging just in terms of the conditions that I was in. So I, I really have to sort of rise to the occasion multiple times and trust my conviction. I mean, language-wise, like my Spanish isn't great. Uh, there was no electricity. You know, there's no electricity. Uh, everyone's living through trauma. I, I had, you know, I was there on vacation for my birthday, but then I decided to stay because of the hurricane. So it was like I was filming everything on my iPhone. I was editing myself. So I was like, it, it was it was on that level for me, maybe the most rewarding. And also, again, it's a very, I think part of the reason I've always gravitated towards Puerto Rico and, and like felt very at home there in the context of the U.S. is because it's another story of sort of, you know, a group of people who, um, you know, colonialism, if you will. And uh, what, you know, still a lot of people there see it as a U.S. colony. Um, and, you know, with what happened in Palestine, with the, with the British mandate and everything, I mean, 
you know, so it's it's a familiar narrative, and I think a story where you know this is a group of people who are often neglected and erased uh, in the U.S. context, and uh, yeah, so I I loved um, that experience. It was one of the hardest successes of my life, but it was super rewarding. I want to end on this self-reflective note. You've achieved so much. What would your younger self not believe about your life today? <laughs> uh, I don't know. What would he not believe? Or uh, maybe you did believe. Like, you knew this was going to be the way it no. is. No. Well, no, I, I guess my younger self, actually, in a way, would be like, why are you, why are you so political? Like, what, you know, the same question. Why are you worrying yourself with these... You know, these, these things that are so um, difficult to process for yourself and for the audiences that you share these stories with. Why aren't you dancing? Like, didn't you want to be a dancer? He might say to me. Um, didn't you want to be a performer rather than mire yourself in sort of humanity's most uh, tragic uh, realities? No, I'm joking. I think... Um, yeah, I think I'm I'm not so surprised by this path, but to be honest with you, I'm I'm at a, at a very exciting time in my life where I'm exploring other things and trying to trying to um yeah, trying to find new ways of sort of doing what I love, which is uh, to tell stories, but also to to hear people's stories. And that's the beauty of storytelling, right? You can do it in so many different ways. So maybe my my younger self might be a bit surprised that I chose this sort of um uh, more cerebral and intellectual path, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, because when I was a kid, all I wanted to do was like put on a show or be part of a show. Uh, every, I think the exploration process um, is, is always a healthy one. Uh, in life, sometimes we get bogged down by things that we, we do, and it becomes second nature. And I think, as you said, since this is the reflective question, um, it's, I think it's healthy to reflect and to, to question and to question whether or not, you know, you're uh, fulfilled and if you're fulfilling sort of your, your purpose, for lack of a better way of putting it. Amazing. And with that, Ahmed, thank you so much for being a part of this. Stay tuned to Conversations Over Coffee for more from inspiring Palestinians.